Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the latest mini-sode. Just a quick bit of housekeeping first. I want to say a huge thank you to listener Yosef for his lovely review on iTunes and his really kind donation. It is really appreciated. Also, I want to apologise to those of you, like Yosef, who have noticed that the last four minutes of episode 002 seem to have been chopped off. I'm completely baffled and very embarrassed. I will look into it and hopefully I can restore the original from my backups and reinsert it into the feed at a later stage. The transcript of episode 002 is on the website so you can still read my script and imagine my voice. Or not, depending on how you feel about my accent. Also on the website, I've added a section for artwork. You've probably noticed that I really like to mention art and poetry, so it is great to begin adding relevant paintings on the site. I'll be covering some of these paintings in detail in later episodes. Adding them will be a slow process, but I'm hoping it can be a fairly large gallery of Victorian art in the future. Also, I'm going to add a section called Musings. This will let me pop up shorter articles that don't quite fit the podcast, but covering things that I'd like to mention. Okay, on to today's topic. I've had a question from listener Melissa W, which I thought was interesting. How does the Napoleonic era influence the Victorian era? To me, they are very separate and don't influence each other, short of some of the characters involved. I actually think that's a great question because it shows how we tend to think about history. These labels like Victorian or Edwardian or Tudor are a way for historians to locate a particular time period and give it a shorthand. Strictly speaking, the term Victorian should only be used for the Queen, the United Kingdom, its citizens and subjects and the actions they took during this period. So, it's Victorian if you are referring to the UK or the UK's history in a global context, i.e. colonialism, architecture, literature, etc. And I was very lucky to get that direct quote uh, from the always fantastic Dr Fern Riddle, who is the author of some fantastic books on the Victorian age, including the Victorian Guide to Sex. Strongly recommend you picking up a copy and following her on Twitter because she is really brilliant and it's well worth it. And she was kind enough to school me on the use of the term. Anyway, in everyday language, people often use the term more loosely to cover a wider range of things. But labels like this are historical shorthand. They would not have meant much to a person living at the time. No one in the late Bronze Age would ever have referred to themselves as being late Bronze Age, no matter how much their refusal to accept it would anguish a later historian with a time machine. This comes back to something fairly fundamental with human nature. We have problems with the concepts of becomings and spectrums. 
We like hard categories. This is A, this is B. We struggle with the concept of overlap and transition. Think of it in terms of adulthood. Legally, we like it to be a clear concept. At 18 in the United Kingdom, you are legally an adult. Bam! Fully responsible for everything in your life. At 17, you are a child. But the reality is a lot more complicated. Modern science tells us that brain development occurs at different rates in different individuals and carries on far later than people give credit for. So whilst legally you are the finished adult product at 18, the reality is that your whole life is an ongoing process of change. You are never finished. You might have some major life-changing events that shape your outlook, but you remain the same you that has always been, and also a completely new you that is constantly in flux. The river remains, but the water is always different. In history, there are no truly hard and fast fixed boundaries between errors, but you can usually pick out groups of years where there are obviously serious changes that make convenient bookends. An example is the Black Death in Europe. The Victorian era is a very good label for historians, but it is a set of years that followed the years that were the Napoleonic era, the Regency era, the reign of William IV, and the things that happened in the Victorian era were built on the things that happened in the years leading up to it. I'm emphasising this because at schools especially, there is a habit of splitting things up into these periods in a very hard boundary way. This is the Tudor period. The Tudors were more advanced than the Middle Ages. You see it in computer games too. You have advanced from the classical era into the medieval era. So you have unlocked knights, pikemen and cannon. Your buildings now suddenly look thatched, cottages, instead of classic Roman buildings. But that's not how life and history actually worked. It was, of course, a bit of a judgment call for what year to start the podcast in. If I had started just at the birth of Victoria or her accession to the throne, I would have been constantly talking about things that had happened around 1815 to 1830 as a backstory. So I decided to build the foundations properly. This podcast aims to cover the world in the 19th century through the lens of the Victorians, but without being wholly Anglo or European centric. It couldn't be the podcast history of everything and how we got here. Although if there is listener demand for me to tell the story of literally everything, I'll have to do a Patreon campaign or two and podcast full time. (laughs) So turning to the main part of the question, what really relates the Napoleonic era to the Victorian era, apart from the people? Well, there are certain key elements that we can use to group events and consequences together. These groups and themes are useful because they show us what is being carried forward from the Napoleonic era into the Victorian era. This is purely my list, and I have to caution you that I've not got academic scholarship to back up this list. It is the one I'm using to construct our starting season of the podcast. And that said, I can't see many academics would object to creating a broad list like this and seeing if events on it had an impact on a later period. They would certainly bring more tools and wider knowledge to the analysis and would be more sophisticated in their conclusions 
As always, this is a podcast, not an academic dissertation. Anyway, here's my list of themes to look out for from 1815 that impact the Victorian era. Item 1. The geopolitical impact. Item 2. Military impact. Item 3. Financial and economic impact. Item 4. Social impact. Item 5. Scientific impact. Item 6. Institutional impact. Item 7. Cultural and artistic impact. Item 8. Personal impact on key individuals. Let's look at item 1 then. The geopolitical impact. The Napoleonic Wars were the last major conflict on the continent of Europe until at least the Franco-Prussian Wars. They were essentially the world wars of their day. In many ways, these wars were just a continuation of the wars between Britain and France that had raged since the Middle Ages. The way they ended and the diplomacy that followed set up the position of the various nations for the next 100 years. They also set up the political philosophies and orders of continental Europe until at least the 1830s, even as far as maybe 1848, and the culture of revolutions that ran through Europe till the 20th century. The defeat of France removed Britain's main global competitor. Britain was left free to develop and become the world's first truly global superpower. Perhaps if Napoleon had won and established France as the dominant continental power, then Britain and the British Empire would not have become as preeminent as they in fact did. Victoria might have become queen of a small European nation rather than becoming an empress. The end of the wars allowed for extended British colonialisation as a result of the preeminence gained by the Royal Navy and they freed up British financial resources to increase investment in new industrial technologies and processes. Colonial exploitation overseas and the exploitation of the working class domestically were equally more feasible. On the continent, the aftermath of the wars gave rise to the ideas of the continental system and the balance of power designed to keep European peace. I haven't mentioned him yet, but one of Napoleon's former marshals, Bernadotte, managed to get himself made King of Sweden in 1818 and founded the modern Swedish royal dynasty. It was only because of the ending of the Napoleonic Wars that he could get into that position. And of course, it drastically changed the situation in Scandinavia, the Baltics and Russia. Item two is the military impact. Lots of Napoleonic veterans lived well into the Victorian period. They ended up in positions of power and influence. They were still shaped by their experiences during the Napoleonic Wars. Lord Raglan, who is later going to be seen to be responsible for the disastrous charge of the Light Brigade, was given the job of commander, essentially because he was an aristocrat who had been a military secretary to Lord Wellington. He revered Wellington, wanted to be as good as him, and in moments of excitement would refer to his Russian enemies as the French due to his previous service in the Napoleonic Wars. The British Army until the late Victorian period, was essentially the creation of Wellington in the Napoleonic Wars. Reform was resisted, and Napoleonic tactics and equipment were clung on to long after it was sensible. The Napoleonic Wars had created strong institutional memories, caused the mass displacement of peoples, and set up various conflicting philosophies would all have to be dealt with during the Victorian period. The Napoleonic Wars were a bit like a devastating natural disaster, and a part of the early Victorian period was dealing with the fallout. The fall of France from continental power 
resulted in a reactionary backlash. The ruling elites, especially driven by Metternich, were determined to prevent renewed conflict. Armies were therefore reshaped to be bastions of conservative ideology, to act as a counterweight to popular mob rule. This new system was set up to maintain a balance of power and prevent future revolutions, but it only had limited success. Continental revolutions would follow, leading to a great deal of political fallout in Britain. Everyone was well aware of the French army's role in the French Revolution, and governments would consistently be preoccupied with whether armies would join in popular uprisings in France. Whilst for the Prussians, the army became an arch-tool of a conservative nationalist philosophy. It also impacted heavily in Ireland by heightening the British fear that Ireland would rebel or assist with continental invasion. The wars had created a fear amongst the British establishment that led to ever-increasing British military intervention in Ireland. The Irish question, as it was called, became an obsession of the British political class till perhaps around 1990. For this reason alone, the Napoleonic era could be said to be fundamental to understanding the Victorian era. Item 3. The financial impact. Financially, the obvious impact is that the ending of the wars allowed a major change in spending patterns. Up to the end of the Anglo-French Wars, Continental Wars and Napoleonic Wars, most countries were being hit with a financial triple whammy. The first was that large militaries required lots of money in terms of pay, arms and equipment. The second was that money being invested in the military was not really productive. Most military spending is not productive in terms of generating further wealth. France did exceptionally well in terms of loot, but that is wealth transfer, not wealth creation. The third whammy was that military actions were a constant blight on cities, agriculture and trade. The ending of the wars left most nations with the mixed blessings of a peace dividend. They could downsize their militaries and repair war damage. They could also redirect investment to innovation and industry. Some had even established national banks like the Bank of England, to finance the wars, and these institutions were vital for early investments. But there is a downside to a peace dividend as well. I know that sounds surprising, but there is. Unemployed soldiers have to be found work, otherwise they can end up either starving and increasing crime, or perhaps joining a revolution. High taxes have to be levied to pay off war debts. Navies have to be downsized, and that actually costs quite a lot of money. Lots of infrastructure and agriculture needs to be repaired. War is far better avoided, as it is expensive to fight and expensive to end. Item 4. Social impact. Well, this might not be quite so easy to relate to the Victorian period, but there certainly were profound social impacts from the Napoleonic era that shaped the Victorian era. The status of the British army was profoundly changed. When the conflict finished, a large portion of the aristocracy and ruling class had served in the British army officer class. They wanted and expected to be lauded for it. They had a very strong interest in establishing a certain view of wars with themselves as the good guys. Remember, everyone is the hero of their own story. Almost no one wants to get up in the morning and think of themselves as a cartoon villain. We all create elaborate justifications and excuses for how we behave and make sure they fit our own internal narratives. And that applies no matter where you sit on the political or philosophical spectrum. The victorious officers of the Allied powers wanted to see themselves as having done their duty 
to save civilization as they saw it. They would have given various reasons, but in Britain there was a general feeling that the war had saved the country from invasion and that it had been about protecting British liberties and rights from a dictator and from the evils of democracy. Remember that democracy was not a universally admired form of government at the beginning of the 19th century. A lot of the ruling and middle class genuinely feared what they viewed as the tyranny of the mob. They fretted that democracy would result in the poor voting to take money and property from the middle class and rich to give to themselves without earning it. They were shocked by the revolutionary reign of terror, which seemed to them to vindicate their every fear. They felt that Britain had ancient social and legal institutions which had carefully evolved over time and should not be tampered with lightly. The art and politics of the time responded accordingly. A national myth sprung up of the plucky British fighting valiantly against the evil Napoleon and the hated enemy, the French. British pluck from the common soldier, harnessed by his benevolent and wise gentleman officers, beat the unwashed, drunken, impetuous French hordes. As you know from my recent podcasts, this is simplistic nonsense. But the myth was being set. It led to a sense of entitlement. In a general sense, this wasn't viewed wholly as a military conflict. It could actually be viewed at the time as a clash of civilizations. As Britain was the victor, it followed that she only won because her whole national structure and being was superior to the French, and thus Britain deserved the fruits of victory. It was only a statement of the obvious that having proved herself the greatest society on earth, all other societies should want to emulate her. Again, that is insane to a modern person with our more internationalist worldviews, but it helped shape the national myth of the time in the same way the United States had a creation myth of manifest destiny or the Chinese had the concept that they were the superior kingdom at the centre of the earth at the beginning of the 19th century or the Japanese who were trying to preserve the samurai and traditional way of life as being superior to the Western alternative. Our next theme is scientific impact. The concept of modern military science didn't really exist in the Napoleonic period. There was no specific national drive at coordinated research and development with accompanied creation of national industries to support strategic war goals. Still, there was scientific innovation that came directly from the conflict. Huge advances were made in metallurgy, theoretical physics around gunnery, explosives, manufacturing processes like centralising armouries, the standardisation of artillery calibres, the perfection of long-range sustained naval activities, improved ship design, increased industrial productivity to meet wartime demands, and of course food preservation. Many of these were fundamental to making the enlarged British Empire possible, as well as boosting the technological edge that Western powers had over other nations. Our next item is the institutional impact. I've already touched on some of these. It's just worth remembering that some major institutions were either created as a direct result of the Napoleonic Wars or were affected by them. The banks of England and France are the most obvious examples, but the Prussian military staff corps, the proto-modern military medical system, and the navies and armies of the time are all good examples. Turning to the cultural and artistic impacts, aside from the social impacts I've mentioned, the Napoleonic Wars 
were a source of great inspiration to a lot of artists, writers and poets. You know, you can just take your pick here. Walter Scott visited Waterloo in person. The poet laureates wrote poems about it. There were numerous pieces of literature in various newspapers and prints. There is a mountain of artwork. One of the most notable is Victorian military painter Lady Elizabeth Butler. We will be doing a full episode on her soon after the Waterloo series as she has painted some really fantastic military artwork that includes some iconic pieces. And of course there there are numerous other influences that you can just trace across time, including some environmental effects from the year 1815 that will influence the Victorian period, as well as the Romantic and Gothic artwork movements. Napoleonic and Victorian are historical labels, and we shouldn't overstretch them. But equally, we should remember that life happens as a continuous process. People didn't suddenly go, Victoria has been crowned, so this is the Victorian era, and I will now have access to Victorian era industrial technology. These were people who lived their lives. And for a lot of them, their lives started in the era of the Napoleonic Wars and ended in the era when Victoria was on the throne. Think of it like getting married and having children. That's a huge set of life-changing events. It would make you feel like a hard, bright line to a new era in your life. But you remain you, married you, parent you. is still affected by the you that chose to work or study somewhere. Married you gets new perspectives or has new experiences and challenges that can seem so very different. But married you is perhaps only a few years apart from non-married you. I hope that this answers the question and helps to convince everyone that we actually needed to start just when we did. Once we've put these building blocks in place, we can really start moving forward towards the Victorian age proper. I'm really excited about the future of the podcast. I think we have a genuinely long journey ahead of us and I'm not going to rush it and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be apologetic about it either. As I've said before, I feel this is a very neglected period and I'm just so looking forward to exploring all of the ins and outs of it in a lot of depth. And I hope you are too. I hope you're enjoying the Waterloo series. I've had a great time not just learning about Waterloo, but also trying new effects and new music and new styles of presentation that hopefully you'll find as informative and entertaining as as I have had fun producing them. Obviously, We're nearly at the Christmas period, so life is going to be busy. I want to reassure you there will be another full episode before Christmas, sometime between December 1st and December 12th, depending on how school timetables and my consumption of mince pies goes. And then there will be, obviously, the Christmas holidays. So there won't be a full podcast after Christmas until the beginning of February. But obviously you've got this mini-sode now, you'll have another crackingly good episode on Waterloo. And then next year, it's on with the show. Okay, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can reach me at the email, ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com on Twitter or via the Facebook page. Also, don't forget to check out the website at ageofvictoriapodcast.com and please do leave a review on iTunes. Thanks and take care.